Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. I'm happy you found us. If you've had some concerns about downloading the COVID Alert app, you're not alone. 52% of Canadians are concerned about it. Michael Geist may quell some of your fears in the coming minutes. And we will get in the Wayback Machine with Alan Cross talking about Phil Collins in the air tonight, which has re-entered the music charts after nearly 40 years. And we're going to discover some tidbits about that song that I did not know. Let's start off the podcast with my conversation with disease specialist Dr. Martha Fulford about the safety of freight and packaging after China has reported several cases of frozen food packaging was contaminated with the novel coronavirus this week, which has the folks in New Zealand concerned. As soon as I saw this story today, I thought I've got to get Dr. Fulford on because when we last spoke, I said one of the things that I was finding most um, it, it increased my anxiety. It was one of the most stressful things I had to do was wiping down the groceries. And you had said that you stopped, you know, you didn't wipe down the groceries no. because the risk of transmission was very low. And I thought, oh, well, if Dr. Fulford's not doing it, I'm not going to do it. And I have to say, it has saved me a lot of time. It saved me a lot of anxiety and it's helped kind of ease my mind as I, you know, we try and get back to some sort of new normal at stage three of reopening here in the province. But then I saw this story and I thought, well, you know, we've got to find out what's going on here, that China has reported several cases of frozen food packaging contaminated with the novel coronavirus this week. And New Zealand said it's investigating the possibility that its latest COVID-19 cases could be traced to an imported flight because um, one of the people that has COVID-19 in New Zealand worked at a cool store that takes imported frozen goods from overseas. And China said on Thursday that a sample of frozen chicken wings imported from Brazil had tested positive for the virus. So now, and that's always been my my worry, is what about the food that I haven't wiped down or I have wiped down that I'm putting into the freezer? You know, when we always think about those labs storing viruses to keep them viable so that they can work with them, it seems like they're putting in them into... Um, you know, very cold temperatures to keep the the virus alive. Is there a worry with frozen food? I I think myself and all my colleagues are still going to say exactly the same thing. This strikes us as exceedingly improbable. So you have to, uh, a couple of things. One is finding virus or particles of a virus doesn't actually tell us it's alive and infectious. And this is a really important distinction because what we're actually doing is, is what we call PCR molecular testing. So, so there might be a fragment of, of virus, but it doesn't mean it's infected. So you're going to have to presume that somebody at the other end actually coughed or sneezed enough on, on uh, something to contaminate it, that it survives transit, because viruses aren't that viable uh, for very long, and they certainly cannot multiply or survive outside of a, of a living host of a, of, a, of a human being or a mammal for this kind of virus. So it would be inert. Um, the temperatures that we freeze in the lab are very different than, you know, sort of the, the freeze-thaw type thing you're going to find in a scenario. But even if there were some sort of a small amount of viable virus, you then have to actually touch it with your finger and then take that finger and rub it in your nose or in your mouth or your eye. And you have to presume there's enough viable virus there that it's actually infectious. And so that seems really, really unlikely more likely in New Zealand, it will be interesting to find out as, as they track, is that they actually had uh, wider spread community transmission uh, that had been unrecognized until this case popped up. Because, I mean, people are still allowed to return to the country and, and they're supposed to have been in quarantine, but, 
you know, not everybody is perhaps as meticulous about it as, as they should be. And unfortunately, when people are supposed to be in quarantine, they aren't actually necessarily going to confess that they may have broken quarantine because they're not supposed to. So right. getting back to surfaces, I mean, if people are worried about about packaging, which I would not be, the answer is actually just wash your hands after you touch them because because nothing, it will not penetrate through your skin. The amount of virus on any inanimate surface is, is minuscule. And unless you take it from that surface onto one of your mucous membranes and, and, and ideally into your lungs, it's not going to be infectious. And it certainly does not survive cooking. Um, so that's why we're, we, we, all of us would still maintain this is not a, a form of transmission of a respiratory virus, or at least if oh. it happens, it's, it's bizarrely rare. Okay, so it's good to know. I can go back to uh, resting easy, not wiping down my groceries, but just being careful, washing my hands after I get back from shopping, washing it for 20 seconds. I, I don't know about you, but I see people washing their hands now, and I'm like, uh, that's not 20 seconds. Yeah, I, this is true. I mean, I always wash my hands after I got back from the grocery. I think one of the nice things um, that I see now is, is, is in fact, that things like wa- like the grocery carts are being washed down because they, they were kind of icky sometimes before. Right. So I actually think clean is good. Um, I always used to wash my hands as soon as I got home. But you're right. It's a, it's a good scrubbing with soap and water. That's all you need. Let me ask you about a question that a lot of people have, and it's the washing of masks, because a lot of people are using them on non-medical masks, face masks. We're making our own cloth masks. And, you know, people are hanging them on their uh, rear view mirror just after they go shopping or something, and they think, okay, well, I'll just let it rest there, and then I'll put it on again. Um, I've heard that you should be, after each uh, wash, or after each wear, you should take them in, wash them with hot water. But have you heard anything about... Um, this new study that found that you can actually use your rice cooker or your crock pot as an autoclave. So basically, um, Any, you leave. That, yeah, sure. Anything that, that soap and water will clean will, will deactivate the virus. Heat will. Uh, actually, a microwave probably would. Um, so, so, but but honestly, you don't have to actually autoclave it. I mean, you just wash it in soap and water. I mean, right. plug it in your washing machine with the rest of your laundry. Um, there's, there's no, nothing magic about it. That's all we would do. I mean, that's what we do with, with our stuff in the hospital. I mean, that's what I do when I get home with my, with my clothing. If I have to happen to be wearing scrubs for whatever random reason, I just, you know, I would just wash them. I don't, there's nothing fancy required. So we should be washing those, uh, those face masks after every use? Well, remembering that we're wearing the face mask so that we don't transmit our germs to other people. And so, again, I mean, you want your mask to be clean, very much so. But the, the important thing is if you are reusing it during the day, that after you plunk it on your face, because there may be virus if you happen to be shedding virus, remembering that, that, that uh, fortunately we have very low transmission. And what we're wearing our mask for is that we don't transmit any virus we might inadvertently be sharing. Again, it's all about making sure your hands are very clean. Um, so what, once the mask is on your face, the, the minimize the amount of handling and touching of, of the mask and then touching other things around you. And sure, at the end of the day, that's when I, I think uh, ideally um, we should be washing them. I um, have several. Yeah. Yeah, so do I. I mean, I listen, I, I I bought myself a sewing machine and learned how to sew so that I can make masks for my friends and family. And, uh, you know, it's funny because they keep evolving. I keep finding a better mask and, and I keep making, you know, bigger masks, better masks, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to watch yeah. the progression and, 
you know, my husband and I were talking about when this is all over, when we get a workable vaccine, what happens with the masks? And we both agreed, you know, we'll keep them for flu season because I think we're kind of uh, yeah. turning a corner here where where we are not going to see masks entirely go away in the future. I mean, oh, we won't I, be wearing them every day, but, um, you know, people are sick. They might wear them. Yeah. And, and I, well, hopefully if people are sick, they stay home. Um, and then, mm-hmm. yes, if you have to go out, put the mask on, I think we'll probably end up being a lot more like some of the Asian countries. I, I uh, attended a family wedding last year in Japan and, you know, it was much more normal there to see some people wearing masks uh, and it was considered sort of a courteous thing, particularly if, if you were coming down with something, certainly in the hospital, if I ever thought I might be getting a cold, I immediately had a mask on all day long, so I, there was no conceivable risk I might transmit it to a patient. So I, I think you're right that, that we'll get used to this and we'll become a bit of a hybrid thing when people are in, in really crowded situations or if they're feeling unwell, they, they should, if they can't stay home, you know, be courteous. Appreciate your time as always, Dr. Fulford. Thanks so much for joining us on this. Anytime. All right. I know that Chris Creston is one of the 1.9 million people who have downloaded the COVID alert app to their cell phone. I thought I would have by now. And then I was just having some problems with my cell phone. And I just thought, "Ah, I don't know. Uh, Despite the fact that the government's COVID alert app has received positive reviews from privacy advocates, apparently people are still nervous. There are myths that persist about what data it collects. According to a Leger survey, uh, the results released this week found that 52 percent of Canadians do not believe that the the government, when they say that the app doesn't collect personal information, that seems about right. In fact, I might say it's higher based on the people that we had calling the show when the app was first announced that it would be released on the 31st. They also are, are very um, worried that it collects um, and geolocates your positioning. Another 39% say they didn't believe that the app will work. Law professor at the University of Ottawa Uh, Michael Geist, who holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet Law, is the first person that we thought of contacting when uh, we read this story today. So welcome to the show, Michael. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So what are the misconceptions that are still surrounding this COVID alert app? Well, I think you just named two of them. One, that it's capturing your location information, and another, that the government is collecting your personal information when it's doing it. Uh, why don't we start first with the location side? It's not collecting your location information. What it's doing is trying to identify when you may come in contact with someone who at a later date, within a couple of weeks, tests positive for the coronavirus. So it creates unique identifiers that are not traceable to any individual. Anytime you're within, for 15 minutes, within essentially two meters, six feet of someone, the, the exact kind of, the, the exact social distancing guidelines that we have. So if you happen to be in that close proximity for that 15-minute period of time, essentially your phones exchange uh, these unique identifiers and you go on your way and you don't know that this is happening. It's all happening in the background. And note mm. that nobody knows where it is you are. So there's no location information associated with that. It's merely when these two devices have been in close proximity to one another for a period of time. If one of those people later on tests positive, they can insert a key uh, code that they will receive with the positive test, and you get a notification that your device has been in close proximity to someone who tested positive for the device. Nobody knows the exact location of where you are, where you've been, who that yeah. person is, uh, or any other kind of personal information. Yeah, but I think the operative word there is 
in that sentence was can you know that they can um uh, input this code and if you're if i guess that's where the app kind of falls apart for me if you don't if you're tested positive with covid-19 you have to remember oh i got to put that code in my app because if i don't put that code in my app it's it's virtually youth, useless to the people that you've come in contact with right and so yes the this really depends on almost a two step process one people installing the app and second people if they do test positive, uh, in, in implementing and inserting the code. Now, I'm sure there may be some people who are worried about other things and don't bother doing that. But uh, right. when they when they get the positive test, they will get the they have the ability to get that code. So there's that kind of reminder function. And while I thankfully haven't tested positive uh, at this stage, uh, I know that. You know, when people do, one of the first things they think of is, who did I come in contact with? Part of essentially the own personal contact tracing and have a desire, I think, oftentimes to warn people that they may have been put at risk. It's, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's, it's one that I think a lot of people do. This actually makes that far easier. Now you don't have to personally necessarily to tell people in those circumstances. Inserting the code alone will provide the notification, at least to anyone who's, who you've come in contact with from device to device. Yeah, and apparently because of that, um, there the, you are given the heads up that you're in contact with someone for more than 15 minutes who is pos- uh, positive for COVID-19, but you don't get any information on who it was, which is a good thing, it's privacy concerns here, but where the exposure happened, is, is that a drawback or does it matter? Well, I think, I think the people who are criticizing the personal information side can't have it both ways. And so it's, it's difficult on the one hand to argue, I'm worried about personal information being disclosed and then argue that there's not enough information being disclosed. I think that they've erred on the side of really trying to assuage concerns around privacy by saying we're just really not going to give that information. And, and I think arguably what is relevant at the end of the day isn't obviously to know who it was, uh, much less even when it happened, per se, but rather to know that it did happen. Uh, and then given how easy it is to get tested nowadays, um, many people may take the step to get tested just to make sure that, um, that they haven't contracted it as well. All right. Well, some people are complaining that it doesn't work on older phones. Do we know how many people um, don't have phones that are compatible? That's a good question. And I don't have, I personally don't know the precise number. That has been a source of concern. Part of that is being driven by a desire to use a system that allows this to run in the background. So it doesn't drain your battery. You don't have it on all the time. Uh, and, it, and it lessens the security risk. So the, the newer operating systems have within them the, the ability to run these kinds of apps. Uh, and it was specifically designed for COVID contact tracing or exposure notification apps to run in the background in a secure way. And so it, it's it, in many ways for the user, it's better in many respects. But um, that does pose an issue certainly for those that have older phones with older operating systems and don't have the ability to, to do that now. The government's talking about trying to find solutions, but it's not easy because then it does incorporate some of the trade-offs that we're talking about. If you're not mm-hmm. using that API, um, it's not only going to drain your battery, but may raise some security issues as well. Yeah, and, and you know, the problem there uh, is that research has shown that lower income marginalized communities are at higher risk of contracting the virus. And if you don't have a lot of money, odds are you're not updating your phone on, you know, a yearly basis or, you know, bi-yearly base- basis. I mean, I've still got this old iPhone that, you know, I 
just I'm too lazy to replace. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a, it's a fair concern to be sure. Of course, in an ideal world, you'd have uh, this accessible to everyone uh, and everyone having these devices. At the moment, that's that's clearly not the case. I guess the choice from the government's perspective is one of: is it better to have something out there in conjunction with all the other? Uh, programs that are absolutely critical, including things like contact tracing and widespread testing. So this doesn't replace that activity, it merely supplements it. And if you can, and you've already mentioned, there's millions that have already have installed it, is it better to have a system that will benefit millions, not everyone, and that's a concern, um, rather than saying we are going to only launch this at a time when every single person can get it, knowing that there still may be many people that don't install it anyway. Right. One of the other things that I thought is, is privacy aside, the COVID alert app, It one of the uh, major uh, privacy issues was people worried that, you know, they, it was using geolocation. Um, but it actually uses Bluetooth to determine the proximity of other smartphones. There is a question about the level of precision and that, you know, using Bluetooth. But one of my questions is, I have heard from, um, you know, a bunch of security experts that you don't want to have your Bluetooth enabled all the time because it opens you up to hackers. Do you have to have the Bluetooth enabled in order for the app to work? Yeah, you do. Uh, that's, a, that's essential. And early on, there were some that wanted to use GPS-based tracking instead. But that raises exactly the kinds of issues that you were just talking about off the top, where GPS-based tracking would, for one thing, involve the location data. And so Bluetooth removes the prospect of of capturing location-based data, which I think many would view as a positive. Um, And what it it also does is there's a recognition that Bluetooth is actually more accurate for this kind of purpose than is GPS. If we're in the same building but on different floors, GPS may think that we're side-by-side with one another. It doesn't get the kind of precision that Bluetooth does. How confident are you um, with using the COVID Alert app? Well, I installed it. um, And having taken a look at the privacy reviews, we've had two privacy commissioner offices review it. They've both installed it. Um, We've had security people take a look at it as well. I'm not going to say that this is not, I think anyone who thinks this is the solution for everything is mistaken, and I don't think it's being marketed or sold that way. But I think it can be helpful. I think we're starting to see a lot of people install it. I think a couple million installations, given that it's really still only operation, operational in, in Ontario, and there has, there's a full campaign to raise more awareness coming, I think it's a pretty good start. Um, mm-hmm. And listen, you know, I'm practicing social distancing and working from home and doing things that a lot of people are still doing right now. Um, but when I'm out, have, knowing that, that that program is on, should I come in contact? I think, uh, I think it's a useful thing to have. I think it's important to mention before I let you go that, yes, it has been downloaded 1.9 million times in the past uh, almost two weeks. But this is across Canada because you it's it's live in Ontario. We're the guinea pigs, but you can download it if you live elsewhere in the country. So we actually have no indication on where people are that have downloaded it yet, uh, because, you know, some people might have thought, OK, I'll get a jump on it. I'll download the app to my phone. Once it goes live, it's already there and I can, you know, forget about the fact that I have to go and download it. Yeah, that's right. Um, although we are likely to see other provinces move ahead with implementing this as well. We know that Alberta, which had a previous app. Um, in place, I said they're going to switch over to this. Uh, we're going to see some of the Atlantic provinces, British Columbia, do so as well. And so there's certainly signals that this is going to emerge as a national app. And 
you know, as we move into the fall and the concerns around the prospect of a second wave increase, I think uh, we'll see more and more people say this is part of part of a broader toolkit alongside masks and social distancing and all the other kinds of th- um, things that people are doing um, that they are taking, it's measures that they're taking to try to um, both safeguard themselves and know if they may have been put at risk. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate, you know, the fact that you could give us some of your uh, professional insight into this and maybe uh, calm some people's worries about the COVID alert app. That was my pleasure. One of the big stories today making headlines in pop culture is that after 40 years, Phil Collins in the air tonight has re-entered the music charts. Think about that for a second. Why would in the air tonight? I mean, it's a classic song. It's a great song. But why now? Why well, the answer to that is Tim and Fred Williams. They're 22-year-old twins. They have this YouTube channel. And you might have uh, come in, in in contact with these guys. Maybe it was shared on social media. Basically, they film themselves listening to older music. Alan Cross joins the show from the Ongoing History of New Music and the Journal of Musical Things. Alan, I immediately thought of you when I heard that In the Air Tonight was uh, once again re-entering the music charts uh, after 40 years of its release, I remember when that song was released. Now, I, was, uh, I wasn't I was working yet, but I do remember it. And I remember uh, the album uh, Face Value. I think it was it was one of those albums that my older brother brought into the house. And it was, um, that song was like no other song I had ever heard in my life. It was a big record. A uh, couple of reasons. First of all, nobody thought that Phil Collins actually had it in him to do a solo album like that. Secondly, it did have some new technology. There was the drum machine that you hear in in the air tonight, which was a a, a new thing at the time. And the other thing, of course, and it would not be the same song if it didn't have that big drum fill at about three minutes and five seconds into the song. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody's played it on their steering wheel. You know, it is iconic. And um, Phil Collins was given that idea by another drummer named Chester Thompson. And uh, I went to a drum clinic once with with Chester, and and he says, "Yeah, I, I taught Phil how to play that, and uh, he made a billion dollars." Um, wow! And, and what they did was was that he was, a, be, was he disgruntled when he said it to you? No, no, no. He was he was fine because he ended up working with Phil Collins and a, mon, a number of other projects. Remember, Phil Collins was absolutely ubiquitous throughout the entire 1980s. You couldn't turn on the radio without hearing Phil Collins. So no, no, yeah. they were they were they were they were friends about the whole thing. But the the that drum fill and it's really important to to make note of this is that it was a mistake. They were working in a studio in New York, in a where, and they had the drums set up in a room where the walls, the ceiling, and the floor were made out of slate. So lots and lots of echo and reverb in that room. And uh, they were using something called a talkback, which allowed the person in the control room to talk to the person in the drum room. And uh, somebody had turned up what was called a compressor. And uh, they thought, oh, this sounds weird, but what what if we play drums using this this outboard device, this compressor device? And that's where they came up with the that, uh, it's called a gated reverb that we hear on, on Phil Collins' drums throughout the rest of In the Air Tonight. And it became right. one of the most defining drum sounds of the 1980s. Everybody copied him after that point. Tell me about it. And that is one of the things that really people loved about this video that Tim and Fred Williams, these 22-year-old twins from Gary, Indiana, um, reacted to while listening to that song. I'm going to play some of the YouTube clip because their reaction, I think it's so incredibly endearing, and it reminds you of how you felt the first time you heard that Now We Know was a drum mistake on In the Air Tonight. Have a listen. Yeah. Okay. Show, but the pain is 
Yeah, their reaction to It's a good point, Alan. Um, they said, I, I never seen anybody drop a beat three minutes into the song. And that was one of the most unexpected things about that track is that that big drum moment comes deep into that track. Yes, it um, it was an interesting production choice and it really makes the song because it builds up and you have that menace and then all of a sudden it, it cuts loose. Now, what's interesting about these, these, there's lots of these reaction videos where young people are allegedly film, or are filmed listening to a song that they have allegedly never heard before. And these are supposed to be, you know, honest reactions to music that's, that's new to them. And we've seen reaction videos. Uh, well, we can only, if you want to talk about porn videos, there's a lot of those. Um, but, <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. There, there are lots of <laughs> lots of people doing these reaction videos, and it's it's right. kind of fun to watch. Now, I'm not entirely sure who's watching them. Is it older people who want validation that their music was in fact good? Is it young people who are used to watching them? Other young people watch other things or listen to other things, and and just to enjoy the the visceral reaction, or is it people who um, want to watch people discovering a great song for the first time, thereby reliving the moment they discovered that song. Yeah, I'm going to go with, I mean, for me, it's C. It's that scenario. And I've said that that's where music radio lost me because we stopped the art of discovery. I still think there was an appetite for that. And if you don't, then I I think you don't get Spotify and things like that. I, I, I think agree. It, it, it discovery is incredible and and uh, people love to introduce people to new things uh, one of the things that i thought was fascinating about in the air tonight and i'm sure it's going to start again is the story behind the song and oh, that's what yeah. the guys talk about is the story you know uh they they love they talk about jolene because they listen to dolly parton's jolene they're like i love a good storyline behind the song i'm just it can't wait to see the reaction uh, uh that these guys make if they do a follow-up video on the all this um, myth and mythology behind in the air tonight, and if there was something to uh, the legends behind the lyrics, like there, those there have been stories swirling around for years about. First of all, the most popular one is a drowning man. Um, based, the way I heard it in the '90s, when I think I was is when I first heard it. Um, was that if Phil Collins was on a boat somewhere and they got into trouble and he was sailing and it started to rain and basically um, he and a friend, you know, had to swim to shore and his friend didn't make it and somebody was on the dock just watching the whole thing go down and let him drown. Um, and then, of course, there was a story about how Phil Collins tracked the guy down, invited him to a concert, and once he was there, outed him and said, you know, I can basically I wrote this for you, gave him front that wrote tickets for it and he was arrested. But I, you know, like, is there any truth to that mythology? You know what? I don't care. And I'll tell you why. 
is because back in those days, music was mysterious. Sure, we had the guy on the radio. Sure, we had music magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream and Circus and all those other ones. But we, we didn't know everything about an artist's life or their music. And we ended up getting these weird stories that drifted through the pop culture. Uh, we can talk about, for example, there's a, an Ohio Players song, Love Roller Coaster, where the legend says that if you listen closely, you can hear the screams of a woman who actually died while riding a roller coaster. You know, stuff like that. So mm -hmm. whether or not it's true, I don't care because it harkens back to a time when there was more mystery to music, before the internet, before social media, before everybody could Google any fact about any artist. It's, it was, it was, it made music a lot more fun, a lot more interesting, a lot more mysterious and unattainable. And that began to fall apart about a year after uh, Phil Collins released that song because MTV went on the air. And then in 1984, much music went on the air. So we got to see our artists rather than just, you know, uh, on a regular basis, rather than just, you know, quick guest appearances on a variety show or if we were lucky enough to be able to see them in concert when they came to our town. So uh, it, it, it that story harkens back to a different form of music consumption and I, I'm all for that because it was stuff like that that brought me into music it's like wow is that true really let's find some out. people can some artists are purposely vague about things as well and they'll they'll start to spin different tales to different interviewers just to keep the mystery going Oh, and, and just keep from being bored. I mean, I've done yeah, enough interviews with uh, with with artists knowing that they will answer the same question in different ways just because they want to mess with the with the interviewer because they've done it so many times and they're so bored with it. Well, I think uh, it is interesting that in the air tonight, back on the charts again, it's uh, accolades to Phil Collins for writing such a, a, a an enduring song. And it's interesting, too, to see that it has... Uh, found new life in a really interesting organic way where we have a couple of young people who allegedly have never heard the song before put up a video uh, and videos go viral like they do these days and it has an effect on on this song that's 40 years old. I mean, we saw this before, too. I mean, there, you look out for other reaction videos. Uh, if you want to, for example, look at... Um, oh, there's one out there with uh, people listening to uh, Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time. They say right. they've never heard the song ever before until that one moment. And then they react to it. It's fun to watch, again, because it allows you to re-experience your own music discovery from back in the day. Okay, now before I let you go, I, you know, I'm very opinionated where music is concerned, uh, as I think many people are when, when it comes to art. And I thought Face Value was a solid album. I, I, there's many tracks I love on that album. Uh, the next album was okay, but the third album, his third solo album, No Jacket Require, which spawned a crap load of hits, like just a bunch I think was just complete awful garbage. <laughs> well, Are you with that, me on that? Susu by, Studio is my psychological warfare song. You know where you, yeah. they just play it over and over again and drive you crazy? By by the time we get to 85, 86, Phil Collins had been absolutely everywhere and we were we were tired of him. A lot of us were tired of him. Well, and, does and, he sounded tired of himself with that? That stuff he was well, turning out. Well, maybe he was. I mean, this is the guy, remember, he did Live Aid where he played uh, one set in England and then flew to Philadelphia on the Concorde to play another set. Uh, I mean, he was inescapable and, and you know, it's going, <laughs> he was a character, he became a character of himself.
Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes too much success is a bad thing. Well, didn't he put puppets in one of his videos? I think uh, once yeah. you're doing puppets in your videos, you are a character. Yeah. Was that the uh, Wall of Confusion? Land of Confusion. Land of Confusion. There you go. Yeah. That uh, came, they, were, they ran out that of That came ideas. from Dave because it was a forgettable track. Yeah, I think so. That was a Genesis song, I think. Yes. Yeah, you know what? I think you might. You're well. Why would I question if you're right? I know you're right, Alan. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us and talking music. You bet. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cutrera podcast. Join me weekdays nine till noon live on Global News Radio six forty Toronto.